0: Well, we're going to take our Bibles now and turn to the book of 1 Kings. Uh, David is going to come to us later in our service and speak to us from 1 Kings 16 and 17. Uh, You'll find our Bible reading on page 298 over into 299 of the Blue Pew Bibles. Pages 298 over into 299. Uh, We're reading 1 Kings 16 and from verse 29 uh, down to chapter 17, verse 7. So, 1 Kings chapter 16, beginning at verse 29, it's page 298 of the Pew Bibles. And as we read this part of the Bible, we remember that it's God's word to us. 1 Kings 16, beginning at verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidorians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He led its foundation at the cost of Ibrahim, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastwards and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan, And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening.
1: Well, good evening, everyone. It's lovely to be with you, and I want to thank Stephen for his invitation and for his welcome this evening Uh, I have had uh, two dates back to back in my diary for quite a while now that bring me from Mackerfeld, where we still live over this Ballymina direction. Uh, One of them I was looking forward to more than the other. Today I'm here with you at your harvest and I love the harvest services and tomorrow morning at 20 past 8 my car has to come to Ballymina for its MOT. So you'll know which of those two I was looking forward to most so I'm back over this direction tomorrow. But tonight, I want us to get under the bonnet of 1 Kings chapter 16 and 17 as we round out our harvest services this year. And what an exciting weekend you've already had with the moderator here. Was he operating the digger yesterday? I'd love to have seen that. But a great opportunity to share with you tonight as you think about this exciting future for you as a congregation. Please have those chapters open in front of you, 1 Kings 16 and 17. And as we do so, let me pray for us all as we ask God for help as we look at his word together. Father, this is your word and we are your people and we long for the help of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and to warm our hearts so that we we might love you more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, the Want Makers. Eric Clark recounts the story of an advertising executive by the name of Obi Winters. Back in the 1930s, sales of a particular horse liniment named Absorbine were crashing. But Winters ran some clinical trials to see if this could be used in any way on humans. And so after trial and error over many months, this horse remedy was found to be especially effective on ringworm or fungal infections of the human foot. With a stroke of absolute advertising genius, however, Winters conjured up a whole new name for such ringworm, rebranding the fungal infection with, with the much more classy athlete's foot. Well, it sounds a whole lot better than saying you've got ringworm, doesn't it? In fact, you'd almost be disappointed if at some point during your life you didn't suffer from athlete's food because it carries such more positive, active, almost glamorous associations, doesn't it? It's amazing what rebranding can do. How something so not so pleasant can suddenly sound a little bit more appealing. And it's exactly the same when it comes to sin. Depends on how it's pitched, doesn't it? For as we travel the peaks and valleys for a few moments this evening with Elijah, we enter a time and a place when everything had been rebranded. Life in Israel and the capital of Samaria seemed to be getting better. The economy was growing stronger. Militarily, the army was bigger and the political alliances were firmer and the people seemed altogether happier. That was Israel. In the mid 9th century BC under the leadership of the 7th king of Israel, Ahab. Now, you'll have begun to add it together whenever we had it read for us this evening. That after 12 years of stability under his father Omri, Ahab succeeded him and ruled for 22 years. There's 34 years of a family line back to back. And if you were to read back into chapter 16, you'd read, well that's positively lengthy. Because the previous kings, well, one only lasted a matter of days, the other only seven weeks, and the other a matter of years. Here they were. A dynasty was established. There was a stability of one king passing it on to the next. A long rule, a steady rule, and a great financial boost for the whole country of Israel. Ahab and his wife Jezebel were want makers. They were very clever in creating a culture of wealth and happiness at the expense of the God of Israel, his word, and ultimately his people. They became experts in rebranding. For inner introductions to Ahab, and if you've got your Bible there, you'll see it in chapter 16, verses 29 to 34. We see how he took what was wrong by covering it with, with building projects, with large investments, with healthy budgets and ivory and gold, making something fun out of something that was actually spiritual fungus. Notice with me first of all tonight, the king of sin who leads Israel into a royal mess. That's our first point tonight. The king of sin who leads Israel into a royal mess. That's chapter 16, verses 29 to 34. Now, it's not a great start to a summary of anyone's life in the Bible when it reads like verse 30 does. Do you see verse 30? It says, Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. It's not exactly a ringing endorsement, is it? And if you know anything about those who went before him, his predecessors, that's not a prize that you'd want to claim. He was the sin champion. Look at verse 31. He not only considered it light or trivial, some versions have it, to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, of the Sidonians. But what were these sins of Jeroboam? that we're told that he committed more sins? Well, the answer lies in 1 Kings chapter 12. You don't need to turn there just at the moment, but at that moment in 1 Kings chapter 12, you'll remember something of the history. The nation of Israel is suddenly split in two, with Israel to the north and Judah to the south, and following a civil war, Jeroboam king of Israel sets up his own system of worship using two bulls. He didn't want his new kingdom always looking jealously over the shoulder and longing for Jerusalem and the temple and the sacrifices and everything they'd been used to. And so he unveils these two bulls out of a stroke of genius, one in Bethel and one in Dan, and he declares in verse 28, it's too much for you to travel to Jerusalem. Here are your new gods, the ones who brought you out of Egypt. And we read, and this thing became a sin. You see, he's being very clever, isn't he? He's not starting something brand new, but he's mixing up what was already in Israel's past, recognising that as a nation they had a blessed history where God had rescued them from Egypt. But then he draws something brand new in. Jeroboam acknowledges his people were saved from Egypt, but now he brings in this makeover, this cover-up, and gives it a whole false feel. And you fast forward to Ahab, the king we're reading about just now in chapter 16, and he does exactly the same. He seeks to give worship in Israel a complete makeover. He doesn't want to be tied to all the traditions of the past, but rather rule with the mood of the present. That was Ahab's utter genius. You see, we read here in chapter 16, he married the daughter of his nearest rival in order to pursue peace across the provinces. Ahab opened the door then to the worship of Baal. Jezebel, the lady he married, her father was known as Ethbaal, Baal, and he was a priest of the worship of Baal. And as a result of opening the door and marrying Jezebel and bringing her not just into the country but into the palace, they set up an altar to Baal in Samaria and they made Asher a pole. If you want to know who Asher is, It's Baal's rather attractive missus. You'll read four times in two verses here the word Baal, 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 Baal. Now you see, Baalism was really popular. Israel as a nation were reliant on green fields and fertile valleys and vineyards and crops in the consistent autumn and springtime rainfall. And they just loved Baal. You see, Baal as a god was the poster boy of everything that was fertile. The dew, the rain, the clouds. It was said that he he rode in the clouds. And Ahab and the Israelites bought into this newfound faith. So anytime there was a good harvest, they celebrated. Look what Baal has done. And Jezebel was celebrated for bringing this new character into the life of the Israelites. Ahab and Jezebel made a very shrewd calculation that this new religion would be jolly and justifiable. It was all about festivals and fun and bringing people together and celebrating in the fields. And the people could still hold to their fuddy-duddy Lord of Israel beliefs if they wanted, so long as there was a little bit of diversity, just to add a little bit of variety, give it all a bit of a makeover. Surely worship is meant to be more fun than what we're used to in Israel. Baal worship it was all very hands on. It was full of festivals and frivolity. And parties and revelry. But like any false faith. That looked good on the surface. It had some very deep and dark undertones. So for example. If the crops in your field weren't growing. Well a quick visit to the temple prostitute. To try and coax a further blessing from Baal. That's all you needed to do if your fields weren't flourishing offer your son or daughters a sacrifice in return for some summer growth and whilst Baal looked bright and breezy on the surface he was moody and mopey underneath and wanted to squeeze every last drop of sacrifice out of you he demanded sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice Baal and asherah were like any false gods and in fact any false religion in our world even those today Taking what people enjoy and what people want and somehow moulding them into a fabricated, made-up kind of faith styled on us that tells us a little about God. Stop and think about it. It's amazing how many world religions or how many liberal Christians, even for us here in Northern Ireland today, have morphed what we want And what our families and suits us. And our political views. And our deeply held traditions. And our work. And our holiday homes. And our free time. And our farms. And our money. And try to squish God into our faith. And we pack a little tiny Jesus into our lives. And we create a me version Christianity. We package him up. And we make him in to the religion that suits us. King Ahab of Israel treated sin as trivial. He said, Ha, look whatever. God's not going to anything about this. Yes, the King of Israel rubbishing God and his life, disregarding the holy at the expense of his happiness. And that is seen so clearly in the words of verse 34. It mightn't seem much like much to us, but let me read verse thirty-four in chapter six. In Ahab's time, he of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son Aram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Some of you might be familiar with Joshua chapter six. It's a very powerful chapter. Where Jericho is being defeated. As the Israelites enter the promised land. And the one thing. That they are told never to do. Is rebuild Jericho. And they are told. If you begin rebuilding Jericho. Because Jericho was the symbol of everything. That was wrong. And prevented entry into the promised land. The warning was. If you rebuild Jericho. It will come at a severe cost. Here's King Ahab. Who decides that Jericho would be a very useful fortress for his army. A really useful military outpost at the end, at the edge of Israel. And he gives the contract, the building contract to Hiel. But do you see what we read? It comes at the cost of his firstborn son, Abaram And his youngest son, Segub. So as this beautiful new military fortress of Jericho stands and is a a symbol of everything that seemed powerful and good, it had created jobs, it had created useful economy. All all, all the plumbers and the builders and the joiners were all there and they were were rubbing their hands with glee. All the money, all that was flowing through that and yet there's Hiel standing at the graveside of his two sons. All because they refused to listen to the word of the Lord from Joshua chapter 6. You see, what I want you to see tonight is from the outside looking in, Israel looked as if she had never had it so good with success. But Ahab was leading his people into a right royal mess. Underneath the fun was the spiritual fungus. How is it with you tonight here in Buckn'a at this harvest season? Is it about squeezing God in? Pushing him aside? Ignoring his word? Or is it saying no? He comes first. For the character we're about to be introduced to does just that. Let's read secondly tonight of God's servant from nowhere whose prayers turn off the taps. God's servant from nowhere, whose prayers turn off the taps. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. I love this introduction to Elijah. Now Elijah the Tishbite from in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Elijah doesn't get much of a build-up, does he? Compared to the great kings of Israel in first kings, he walks onto the stage right out of nowhere. In fact, Tishbe, where he's from, is one of those ancient places that is notoriously hard to locate on any ancient map. In fact, lots of the commentators say, no one knows where Tishbe actually was. It was so remote. It was a place of outdoor life, where people were likely to have leathery skin and coarse hands. It was a place of very little sophistication. We aren't told who Elijah's father was, Or where he went to school. Or which prophet trained him. He just shows up. And he walks right into this palace of Ahab. Which we're told later on in 1 Kings. Was a complete ivory palace. From head to foot. From top to bottom. From roof to floor. Was covered in ivory. And in walks this man. With this leathery skin. With the sandals hanging off him. And this man is Elijah. 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 There's something even about his name, which is so resonant. Well, the Hebrew word for God is Elohim, which is often shortened to El, E-L. And Yah is that word for Jehovah that we sometimes use. Yah, the Lord. And whenever you put the letter I, as it were, in the middle, that denotes in Hebrew me or my. You put it all together and what do you got? Elijah's name means my God is Lord or the Lord is my God. Not Ahab. Not money. Not success. Not fame. The Lord is my God. What a name. And the fascinating thing is Whilst we don't know the name of his parents, we do know his name. And what a name he was given by his mum and dad. A name given to him by parents we don't read about. From a place we don't know anything about. But the impact he makes on the whole kingdom for the next three and a bit years is powerful. That even in Israel's darkest days, there was an unheralded family of faith of whom we only know the name of one of their family, Elijah, who teach their child who was God, the living God, and directs their son in honor and service of the Savior. For those of you who are parents, especially with younger children, we might not name our children the Lord as God, but I wonder from the earliest days do we teach our children that the Lord is God and that he is priority in this life. For if we don't, if we don't, the world won't. And they'll become Baal worshippers sooner than we'd think. And so whilst Ahab and Jezebel were playing at gods for their own good, As they benefited from Baal, Elijah saunters into this palace in his sandals proclaiming, there's only one God, his name is Jehovah, and I serve him. My God lives. Let's see how your Baal copes as the taps are turned off. Yes, he really is that bold. And the message really is that simple. There will be neither dew nor rain except that my word, This nobody from nowhere who comes in the power of God has the power to say when it will rain next. Now this is a huge challenge to Ahab, Jezebel and their god Baal because Baal was the god of rain and fertility. Last summer early one morning, due to a tangle of dog leads and confusions over dogs chasing tennis balls in Port Stuart Strand, our dog, who's a bit of a rascal, managed to run off with the tennis ball belonging to Cecilia Daly of BBC One weather fame. It was only whenever I looked up and I recognised her face, I just went, Cecilia! (laughs) And of course, in all the confusion, what do you think I asked her? Well, what do you think it's going to do today, Cecilia? (laughs) I'm sure she gets that all the time. But in the middle of Ahab's reign... There wasn't going to be any rain in fact cecilia and barra and angie and the rest would probably have needed to be furloughed for the next three years because day in day out the sun kept shining the clouds kept passing and the water kept evaporating striking a shattering blow to bale bale you might be powerful but can you make it poor you might, Ahab, be one of the top military men, but what are you going to do with the taps? Baal was about to shrivel, and his reputation fall through the cracks that would open up in every part field across the land. And it's only when we get to the New Testament that we read how this happened. Let me read to you from James chapter 5. These are stunning verses, and I want to encourage you with these verses from James 5. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. One commentator David Field explains and just in case a reader of this letter protests despairingly, sparingly saying like all of us might tonight but I know Elijah. I, I, I know Elijah. James points out that this famous prophet was not an unreachable spiritual superman. He had spiritual ups and downs just like the rest of us. It was not because he was hyper-righteous that God answered Elijah's prayers. It's because his praying was effective because it expressed faith in the all-powerful God whom he served. I had the privilege of driving past the work that's begun just down the road here tonight. And it warmed my heart. And encourage me, the congregation here in Bucknaw is prepared to step out in faith and do something that will send a signal to this whole community that you're doing it not because you want the name for Bucknaw Presbyterian Church, but you're doing it because you want this postcode to come to know and love and meet and serve the Lord Jesus. Friends, be in prayer. Because do you see the difference it made in three and a half years whenever Elijah prayed? He was able, through his prayers, not because he was better than any of us, he was human just like us, but he prayed and God answered prayer because Elijah was all about the glory of his God. And friends, if you are all about the glory of your God, the one who loves you and sent his son to save you, he will honor you for this work that you're about to do. He will be confident of that. But alongside paying for the work down the road, you must be praying for that work down the road. So the impact will not just be in this community for three and a half years, but for generations to come. Elijah was so moved in his spirit and jealous for the reputation of his God, whom he served, he prayed and he acted and he spoke to God and he challenged the king and the taps at this moment were turned off. Baal might be popular, but he could not make it poor. Only God, only God. No God, no rain, no food, no life, no hope. And maybe just a word pastorally. I, I, I'm a visitor here tonight. I, I don't know who you folks are. But I wonder any of you going through a time of particular crisis. Something that's going on in your life just now. And maybe it's led you to the point of asking that question. What is all this, this life and what's it all about? Where's it all going? Have you stopped to consider all the good things you've received thus far? Where has that come from? Who's provided that for you? Who gives it all? Is that not enough to shape our priorities and the when and the how we pray? Some of us can get lost in the darkness and frustration of the moment that we're in. We can let our emotions rule our minds and our circumstances consume our trust. And the latest news almost dominate our minds. But if this Elijah story teaches us anything, it's this. We need not despair. God is always working. Always preparing always readying behind the scenes someone or something to arrive from somewhere to undermine the stability of evil. God raises up his servants from nowhere. You might even be one of those nobody's from nowhere that God is tapping on the shoulder and calling you to play a role locally here at this time. We're already finished. Here's the last thing tonight. That the Lord, the God of Israel, supplies using dirty birds and distant brooks. That the Lord, the God of Israel, supplies using dirty birds and distant brooks. We find that in verses 2 to 6, don't we? Look at God's word. It comes to Elijah in verse 2. And it's a sending word. But it's also a strange word. For no sooner had Elijah made an impact on the court of Ahab than he's whisked away to some remote spot east of the Jordan to the Kerith or the Cherith Ravine as it's known. I'm sure there must have been something in Elijah's heart that caused him to think, Hold on, I've just started the work, Lord, and now you're sending me away to this place that no one knows. Little did he know he was being sent there for a reason to be protected and preserved. Would he not have liked to have watched the events unfold in Samaria as the rains dried up and the sun shone, and almost he could walk into Ahab's palace someday and say, Ha, I told you so. This is all to do with prayer. My prayers and what God. Didn't I tell you this would happen? But no, he's sent far away. Far away, where no one can find him. God speaks, and Elijah travels east. One commentator puts it like this Elijah functions in his capacity as the bearer of Yahweh's word. And when he vacates the premises at God's direction, it is not just any Tom, Dick, Harry, or Azariah is disappearing. The disappearance of Elijah spells the absence of the word of God from the life of Israel. Israel's judgment is the drought of the land and the silence of the Lord. We can easily get taken up in these chapters that it's all about the famine and the drought in the land as it were. The streams drying up, the crops failing to grow because the rain isn't falling. But this commentator is pointing out that what God is actually doing is judging Israel by removing the word of the Lord, which is a very dangerous state of affairs for any people and any nation. The Bible always treats with joy of God's word and the silence of his voice as judgment. I mean, I must say, it always amazes me how many Christian people fail to turn up to church with the Bible. Making it very clear they're not expecting God to speak. But but, you know, even with the Bible, when we have it in our hands, you can still have the Bible in your hand, but still suffer the absence of God's word. You can have the Bible in all sorts of colours today, can't you? And all sorts of types and shades. You can get a Bible for teenage girls. You can get a Bible for retired men. You can have a fisherman's Bible, an engineer's Bible. You can have Bibles to colour in. You can have the New King James, you can have the NIV, the ESV, the AV. You can have a Bible study app on your phone. And yet for all of that incredible availability of the Bible, the word of the Lord often is withdrawn from us. Why? Yes, we open it. But I want to challenge us all tonight. When was the last time you let that word speak to you? Because it's a scary business if we have the Bibles open in front of us but we don't hear what's being said. Let me ask you, how has this word changed you since harvest last year? How has that book got under your skin and transformed you or me since last Sunday? For if we keep hearing from God's word and doing nothing with God's word... God will take God's word from us and he will harden our hearts and he will close our ears. Just like Elijah's withdrawn in judgment upon God's people. And so Elijah arrives at this place, Cherith, which in Hebrew means cut off. And he is alone and he lives and he awaits God's provision every single day, one day at a time. These meals on wings. And this flowing brook. I just think it's a beautiful description. Can you just see it? Come the evening, as Elijah's tummy's beginning to rumble again, and his mind is racing, and he's thinking to himself on another evening, I wonder, has he forgotten me? But there in the horizon come two black dots, getting slightly bigger, coming closer. Come on closer and then it falls at his feet yet again. Day after day, the same thoughts. Will he? Will he provide again? And he looks out and there they come this direction this time. And again, he's provided on another day. 365 days a year for three and a bit years. Day after day, week after week, month after month, ravens dropping. Have you thought about that? Ravens, those dirty, unclean birds that the Jews were not to eat or have any contact with, according to Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. Ravens, anyone who knows anything about ravens out in the fields or around the countryside knows this. They're the birds that rely on, on roadkill. You know, those, those animals that have been crittered by the side of the road, they don't do the hard work for themselves. They always rely on the work of others. Other animals who've had to go first, they're the ones, they're greedy birds, who don't do the hard work for themselves. And yet here they are, these greedy, dirty birds dropping it for Elijah every night. What kind of meat would they bring? Well, you're probably better not knowing. Simply cook it well, knead it up. And God uses this cursed, unclean bird of the air to drop these meat feasts morning and evening to his servant, Elijah. It's utterly incredible. The story goes of a Judge Donald McDonough in Virginia America who ran such an assembly line of efficiency. He used to handle 150 landlord disputes in his courtroom every Friday morning. 150 back to back. Rattled them out no care about people just get them in get them out make us money but at 10 a.m. one Friday morning something made him pause there was a deaf couple who were facing eviction for falling $250 behind in their rent the landlord was insistent in judgment against the couple apparently at that moment McDonald left the courtroom returning in just a few moments with two crisp $100 bills and a 50. And he leant over a hand at the deaf couple and said, "Consider it paid." Much to the landlord's shocked attorney. Who would have guessed that such help would come from such a judge? But as careful Bible readers, we shouldn't be surprised. For as God's people, we look on and we see that our daily sustaining grace comes not from dirty birds in the air or distant brooks from another cut-off place where God's servant was sent, but rather we go to a place where another servant went, where he was not cut off but cut down, a place where God's people should be very surprised to find him, For there we see our daily provision is dirty and cursed and written off by the law, treated as unclean. In fact, one Bible writer says his face is marred beyond recognition for his body is beaten as he hangs outside the city wall in a cut-off place. And just at those moments in life, When we think we have been neglected, or forgotten, or abandoned, or overwhelmed, or alone, I want you to see him there, not as two distant birds, but I want you to see him there, God the Father, God the Judge, not throwing money at you to pay your rent, but God the Father, Sacrificing his own beloved son to pay for your sin and mine. That's provision. Ahab and Jezebel made what was fungus fun. A religion that stank and a God that was powerless was covered up by the attractive nature of what you like and give what you can. But none of us could have dreamt up a God who is all glorious and spotless. Who would give his son as a curse so that we might receive such spiritual blessings. Whenever our eldest daughter was just a couple of years old. I remember that Christmas her tearing the boxes open and the wrapping paper lying all around the living room. And with a gleam on her face that I will never forget, she just looked at my wife and I and said, look at all this stuff. We celebrated the harvest again today in Buckna, And we thank God for every provision that we see and tangible evidence of God's love again in his patience towards us. But as we look at the cross, as we look at the empty tomb, in our mind's eye, as we look up to the glories of heaven and see our Saviour sitting there tonight, even praying now for us. Look at all this wonderful, spiritual, eternal, saving stuff. We mightn't hear the wings of raven come flapping towards us tonight, but we do see those crucified, outstretched arms as once again we celebrate tonight that our God has provided everything we need in him. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you for every provision that we've shared in once again as we celebrate the material harvest, for that food that we enjoy, for the fields that have yielded their harvest once again, for safety as we have gone about our work, for the opportunity to gather in this way a year on again, looking back over everything that is ours. But it all comes from your gracious hand. And what good hands those are hands that provide not just food, but hands that have sent a Savior into this world who would love us and give Himself for us. Lord, may we be a thankful people for all that You provided for us. And may we leave this place tonight and go into this new week full of praise and adoration and thankfulness that you have done all this for people just like us. We bless you, our Father, and we thank you, Lord Jesus. May we be thankful. By your spirit we pray. Amen.